Okay, welcome back to another episode of Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, with me today, as he is every Tuesday, uh, is my friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Hugo, welcome to the show again. Oh, glad to be back with you, Bradley. So a cu- couple of housekeeping things, and then we'll, we'll get into it. The first is um, we've put a survey out for Firewall listeners just to get a sense of what you like, what you don't like, what's working, what's not. Um, and so far, so good. I uh, really have gotten some, some good submissions from people, have learned a lot. And we're just hoping to learn more to, to give you guys the best product we possibly can. So if you get a chance, please go to firewall.media backslash survey, fill it out. It should take no less than no more than two minutes. Um, and it would be really helpful to us. So uh, that's the survey. And Hugo, what are we doing today on the show? Well, we got a whole bunch of ground to cover. So I wanted to lay out a little bit of a roadmap for, for our listeners. Um, we're going we're gonna to start off with kind of a uh, 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 a, a big topic fresh from Bradley's brain, um, which uh, he, he's calling the next pandemic, um, sort of trying to view uh, uh, the current pandemic from the from the view of a of a, a major terrorist organization, which is a pretty interesting exercise. So we're going to start off with that, and you'll get Bradley's thoughts about that. Number two is the sort of Andrew Cuomo saga in uh, in New York. It's now obviously sort of a national obsession, I suppose. Um, although certainly more so here in New York and we're going to try to, you know, we're not going to go through the usual stuff about like, Oh, you know, what a bad dude, um, Andrew is, which maybe he is, who knows, but, um, uh, really try to to paint a picture of, of where things go from here and what we're, what we're kind of learning about New York state's political future, uh, through all this. Um, and then finally we're going to get to crypto, which, uh, sort of crop back up on the on the front pages this week um, with some rumblings from the from the Biden administration about uh, some regulatory ideas and some taxes um, and some ways of sort of bringing the crypto world under the uh, under the thumb of the uh, federal government. So, um, Bradley, let's start with the with the pandemic. Um, Yeah, I it's a I I Bradley wrote something which I guess is going to be published soon. Um, It's it's a pretty amazing piece that that is sort of shocking why, why, why don't you lay out your thesis for us uh, so yeah he, he, here's what i was thinking so if if you were uh the creator of covid and you said okay what's the roi in this thing that i did it, it would probably be the single uh most effective destructive act in human history in the sense that while other diseases like the bubonic plague or the spanish flu uh, killed a lot more people, they, they were able to, and I'm not saying this was done intentionally, but if you just take a, a different perspective on this thing, you have this one virus that killed at least 4 million people, and the real number's got to be double that, uh, infected over 200 million people. Again, the real number's got to be a lot more than that. Um, but, but ultimately, you really shut down society now coming up on 18 months, right, across the board, uh, cost, you know, trillions of dollars, caused quarantines, you know, destroyed school years, uh, people couldn't see their loved ones. So in, in terms of, you know, one virus that basically just started in Wuhan and made its way around the world, managed to have this incredibly de- devastating, debilitating effect, um, you know, so solely uh, from whatever was performed in that lab. Well, I want to jump in for one second there, Bradley, because yeah. you didn't mention something which I know you believe. But but it also yeah. I don't know if it destroyed the credibility of many Western governments and politicians, but it I th- well, actually I think it did. But it but it but it certainly damaged uh, sort of faith in government virtually everywhere across the world. 
Yeah, sh- sure. I mean, if if you look at the result of the election last year and how close it was, scary as it sounds, if if not for COVID, I think Trump very well might have won. So I guess that's the that's the silver lining here. But but ultimately, imagine your Boko Haram or your uh, ISIL or or any of these major terrorist organizations, and you're having a board meeting of sorts, and you kind of call on the the person who's sort of either your your big ideas person or your sort of McKinsey-esque analyst type. And, and here's what I think they would say is um, th- we should be doing this a lot more. Like, forget about all the usual methods of terrorism. You know, obviously every form of terrorism is terrible, but a bombing hurts and kills people in, in the vicinity of the bomb, but really nowhere else. Uh, a, a hijacking, same thing. So um, whereas, you know, with one virus kind of spread in the right way, you can impact seven and a half billion people. I mean, that's really how you wreak havoc. That's how you sow chaos. You know, you turn a once in a century event into a constant occurrence. If you really wanted to throw the world into a tizzy, that's how you would do it. So if we accept that um, viruses and pandemics are probably the highest ROI of destruction uh, out there, short of a, a nuclear war, um, then the question becomes, okay, who, who has them and who can get their hands on them and what what does it mean, right? So we know that there are nation states, including ours, um, that have biological weapons. Um, clearly, the uh, COVID was developed in a lab in, in China. I don't believe that it was deliberately released, but nonetheless, uh, it, it got out and it was government are, are you Are you generally so, a... Yeah. a, a... Uh, where where are you on the lab leak hypothesis? Are you a, a, a skeptic? Are you a sort of positively kind of? No, I think that's I think that's what happened, but I also don't think it was deliberate. Um, so, I, having spent a good chunk of my career in government, uh, I feel strongly that the vast vast majority of conspiracy theories are not true, simply because there's not enough competence to pull them off. Right. Uh, it, it's just too hard. Like there's a CIA occasionally do something crazy, I'm sure. Um, but but overall, basic human confidence and sort of interest in their job is usually not sufficient enough to pull off these very elaborate conspiracies. So I do think it was a government sponsored lab. I do think it was created there. I do think it, it got out. I think it was an accident. But nonetheless, it happened. Right. So now you're. Well, let's put ourselves back in the position of this terrorist organization again. And you're saying, okay, I I can accomplish a lot more if I can create my own virus than anything else. So you can try to do it through developing it. Um, and, and maybe that would work. It's probably really hard in terms of the materials you need, the scientists you need, and everything else. Um, and we see nation, actual nation states like North Korea and Iran trying and struggling to build you know, n- nuclear weapons. Uh, so it, it maybe isn't that feasible for uh, a terrorist group to develop their own virus. But then the question is, could they steal it, right? So we're pretty sure that there are viruses like this in labs. And labs, by the way, it doesn't necessarily just mean secure government facilities. It could mean academics and, and university labs too. Um, in the United States, in Russia, in China, probably in a bunch of places in the EU, Israel, India, uh, a bunch of other places. So if it's stealing a nuclear warhead is one thing, but but stealing, you know, an infinitesimal couple of, of particles of a virus, 
uh, that you could then replicate, uh, that seems a little more feasible, right? So if there are hundreds of labs in the world or even thousands that have some version of these different viruses within them, and you were a really sophisticated terrorist group, um, you would find the weakest ones, you would target them. Um, and then as soon as you had something, you would release it to society. And the release part is pretty easy, right? Because all we want right now is to get back to normal. That's the phrase that everybody uses. Back to normal means, you know, we're a fully uh, connected society again, right? And, and all you gotta do is put one person on a plane from JFK to Beijing or vice versa, um, and there you go. So there you go. You mean one, one infected person just coughing all over people? You mean? Yeah, I mean, maybe it's more than one, but 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 ultimately that's really what it is. And so if we have a society that's going to be this global interconnected, which in many ways is a wonderful thing, but if if we're going to have that, then the conditions that allowed COVID to spread so rapidly um, are going to exist again. Which means that if you were the terrorist group and trying to think is this a good you know thing to do in terms of getting a return on my investment, um, the answer would be yes, right? So let's just stipulate that that my concern is not totally crazy. Uh, I think, by the way, that we one of the things we probably should do is get get one of these uh, one of these newfound uh, COVID celebrities to to come on um, come on the podcast to discuss because I'm I'm curious just to hear what what they'd say. And and I mean they obviously need a new uh, a new hook for for um, for for you know keeping their celebrity going so maybe they'd uh... yeah I, I I was when I was writing this I was talking to a friend of mine who has a lot of experience in the kind of tech counterterrorism space and, and she was basically making the case of look um, nation states have biological weapons they've had them for a long time they haven't used them that's probably not a material risk. But she did say that, you know, if a terrorist organization could get it, obviously they could use it. Um, what did she mean by that, biological weapons? I mean, I, th- I, I think of, I mean, that they have, they have infectious viruses that, that are ready to, to be unleashed. That was the way I interpreted it. I, I didn't press her for a definition of biological weapons, but that's what I, that's what I think she meant. And so now she made a good point in that, uh, if you spread a virus, you can't really control it by like ethnic groups or demographics. So, you know, you can't just go after who orders. You don't, don't really like, respect right? viruses. We figured that out unless you're, unless for you're sure. Australian. But, but at the same, at the same time, if you hate the Western world, uh, the more established and developed the society is, uh, the more a virus sort of wreaks havoc in it because it just takes away more and more of life that you're used to. So I, I think the incentive is still there, right? So he, here's what I would like to see, uh, and and maybe maybe I'm totally wrong on this, but one, I, I, I'd like to see that our leaders say this is a risk. Not so they panic everyone, but I just want to know that, you know, between Biden and Putin and Xi and Modi and Johnson and Merkel and everyone else, they got a list that says, even if they don't want to totally share it with each other, these are the 2,000 labs that have biological agents that, that could be really problematic if they were to get out. And here's how we're really going to secure these things. Um, just they don't, they don't need to post the, the schematics on Reddit, but I, I do want to know that they're on it. Uh, and they're taking it seriously. So that, that's number one. Wait, let no, me ask you: Did your friend is, have any? Did yeah. your friend have any uh, assurances that some of that was already happening, or, or do you think it's just? She felt that's, that's a good question. She 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 did. She felt like you know they're not just sort of left there with the front door wide open for anyone to walk in. Um, 
But at the same time, the incentive and the awareness to try to steal these is so much greater now post-COVID than it was pre-COVID that whatever security measures seem sufficient uh, before 2020, I think now very well may not be. Right. Right. So, so, so that so the first is I I want to know that the governments of the world see this as a risk and they're doing something about it. You know, so that that's number one. And, and and maybe they are and they're not saying anything, but I think I don't think it's unreasonable to be concerned that this this could happen again. Um, the the second is you know we've got to make ourselves less vulnerable, right? So I I think the the pharmaceutical community did a great job of producing the vaccine very quickly and maybe MNR technology. Uh, will help us produce other vaccines really quickly as well. Um, but I also think that we've got to think about, you know, at least in times of crisis, are there facilities that we nationalize? Or on the flip side, because pharma had the infrastructure and resources to develop these vaccines, should we stop screwing with them and trying to impose price controls on them? Uh, maybe it means that we need legal precedents set before the next pandemic uh, that say that vaccines potentially you know, supersede individual rights. Uh, and so could, you know, mass requirements or things like are that. Gonna, are going to love the idea of, uh, of, of allowing companies to profit wildly from, you know, all their, all their new drugs. I mean, I think, isn't that a, almost a trap sure. in a sense? I, I think my friends on the left would don't like a lot about me. Uh, <laughs> so that, that's okay. Um, You're look, right I, I'm not, I'm not arguing that all of a sudden now pharma should be completely unregulated. What I'm saying is the only reason they were able to do this in such a short period of time is because they are very big, well-capitalized, well-developed uh, businesses with huge infrastructure. And they were able to devote all of that to developing vaccines and got it done in a record amount of time. If you were to take away that infrastructure for them, uh, I don't know that you could count on uh, them being able to do that. And if you are worried at all that we are entering an age of pandemics, that the last thing you would want to do is, is weaken your ability to produce vaccines quickly. And, um, and, it, and so, it, it largely happened in the United States, too, um, which is, uh, I mean, obviously been noted. But but it, it's it bears repeating that the uh, that for all the ways that big pharma is criticized in this uh, in this country, the the. Uh, the fact that the that these big American companies were able to respond, you know, and do, you know, essentially world saving, um, create world saving drugs is, is pretty remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and in, in part, you know, for the same reason that drugs are expensive in the U.S., so there are a lot of calls for reform. That's also the same thing that established the you know, financial and physical infrastructure to allow the vaccine development to happen. So, you know, I th- th- there's two sides of the coin here, but I think for once at least we should recognize there's some upside to the status quo in, in pharmaceuticals as well. Um, well, this piece, this will be this will be laid out in a piece that, that you're writing. We don't have a update for it yet, but it, it will be within the next week, I'm sure, week ten days, and we'll we'll, yeah, we'll obviously let so. listeners know uh, where and yeah, when that's happening. Sure. Um, and, and it's, it's a great one to to hear back from people too, on the surveys and other things. Um, because it is a, you know, you're, you're being provocative obviously, and, and, and you're, you're sort of spinning out some scenarios, you know, there, there are ways to learn from the pandemic, um, besides like, make sure we always have masks on hand. Um, and, and some of those measures, which are obviously important as well, but yeah, for, for sure. Before we switch over to Cuomo, just, just a couple of things that I think from a policy standpoint are worth thinking about. Uh, one, uh, why don't we try to establish legal precedents now 
that can require things like forcing people to, to take vaccines in most cases or to wear masks, as opposed to kind of just doing nothing, waiting for the next pandemic to hit um, and then dealing with it. Um, same thing with the supply chain. We shouldn't be relying on other countries for, for PPE. Um, yeah, maybe there will never be another pandemic again. I hope so. But let's make sure that we have all the means of production um, here in this country and also climate change. Right. So let's let's go with the original theory that it happened in a, in a market in Wuhan and not in a lab. Um, to a certain extent, as wildlife and people kind of collide more and more because of the disruption of habitats, uh, one possibility is that wildlife have diseases. They could then communicate to people and then people communicate to each other. So we, we at least got to understand um, what that is. And then if you kind of look at the local, those are all kind of national type issues, cities, right? You know, cities struggle to educate kids. Uh, in COVID, it was really hard for them. So I think most of them did the best that they could. But if you know that this could happen again, what does the remote schooling world look like? How do you make it more effective? How do you make it less awful? You know, the two of us both had kids, you know, who had to go through remote schooling and, and nobody particularly loved it. Um, we can do better than that. If you're an employer, um, you're probably already making adjustments because of COVID to allow people to kind of have more flexibility or maybe they kind of have, they don't even have a full-time desk at work. They just grab them when they need it. Um, but I think you've got to think that this is a potential world where you'll be shifting back and forth between remote working um, and in-person working. And you've got to have some system set up to, to accommodate that. So uh, anyway, I think that it, the risk of another pandemic is strong enough that to not at least take some of these basic steps to secure the facilities that we have, make sure the means of production exist for vaccines and, and for emergency equipment, um, and, and recognize that in the way society needs to change in a pandemic, ha- give ourselves the ability to make those changes a little less painfully. Um, I think to not take those steps would be crazy. Yeah. Let's switch to Cuomo. Um, why don't you just remind people quickly, just before we get into it, just what your priors are with him? I mean, um, you, you never worked for him, obviously. You, you've had a few runs no. here and there, but but just had, give us your base, your base yeah. on uh, on on Andrew Cuomo and, and Bradley Tusk. So, the, so a- a- Andrew Cuomo, and I think at this point, what I'm going to say about him is now actually understood by pretty much everyone. Um, you know, it, it's it's two sides of the same coin. On one hand, he is brilliant at the chessboard uh, of Albany and state legislative politics and in terms of being able to win power in state government and wield power in state government, um, he, he really truly is a master at it. Um, at the same time, he, he's a despicable human being. Um, and by the way, anyone who works in politics knew this long before uh, all of these accusations started coming up. Um, he just, you know, he, he believes in a world that's kind of a zero-sum game and if you're winning, that means he's losing and he doesn't want to see you win. Had you ever heard rumors, at least, or, or about this particular problem no. of his? Um, I, I had not. Okay. I had not at all. Uh, I, I wouldn't say I was surprised in the sense that he's not a good person. So therefore, the fact that a bad person would do a bad thing to me wasn't all that shocking. Um, but at the same time, um, no, I, I had not heard uh, anything about that. Uh, but I've also never worked in Cuomo World, and I've sort of encouraged uh, anyone who's asked for my opinion to not work in Cuomo World, simply because it, it's, as I've read now, 
it is just a toxic environment where people are pitted against each other. They rule through fear and intimidation and coercion. That's how they get this stuff done politically and legislatively. Uh, it's how they run their own operation. Um, that's a terrible world and environment to be in. And so I have always uh, stayed o- away and out of it. Okay, so let, uh, let me, let me let, let's, let's yeah. leave the background there and let's go through some questions that we came up with. Yeah. Are we sure Cuomo is done? Yeah, he's done. Um, he's done. So it, it's purely a question now of does he make them impeach him or does he resign? Uh, impeachment, the argument would be look at Trump. He hung in there. Ultimately, things worked out better for him uh, in that he wasn't impeached. The difference there is um, the votes are very clearly lined up to take Cuomo out of office. The other thing would be what Cuomo saves himself by resigning in terms of his pension or other benefits or the ability to run for office again and things like that. So, you know, he probably at the end of the day resigns simply because it's, it's the smarter choice, but either way he's done. And so no chance of, of, of not just staying until next year's election, but, but actually winning it. No chance. Zero. No, I don't believe, I believe zero. Okay. So where does that leave us in terms of the next governor of New York state? So Kathy Hochul is the lieutenant governor of the state of New York. She was a one-term congresswoman from Buffalo. Uh, she's been lieutenant governor for, I guess, two terms now. Uh, and um, she's seen as a moderate. I don't think that much is really known about her. She's pretty quiet. Um, and obviously, the point of the lieutenant governor is not to overshadow the governor. So most lieutenant governors are yeah, pretty quiet. Yeah, she seems quiet. to have done a really good uh, job of that. So Yeah, yeah. She's very talented. Um so uh, so we'll see. I think the answer is we don't know. Um, I think that the press will give her a real moment and opportunity to shine. Uh, she's the first female governor in the state's history. Um, and I think that she'll have a chance uh, to be successful. And we'll see if, if she has a great legislative session next year and decides to run for the seat in 2022. She could have a shot at it. Um, she could also decide just to be a caretaker be in there for roughly 18 months and, and leave. Um, so we'll see. But, you know, if if you are not a hardcore progressive, um, in some ways, Kathy Hochul's ascension uh, should be welcome news to you because it, it, you're not totally turning over the keys to the far left. How about your good friend Bill de Blasio? Is he a, a viable candidate for governor? He's a candidate for or a potentially a potential candidate for governor. I wouldn't say he's a viable candidate for governor. Um, if you look at how de Blasio won, the mayoralties um, beyond just incredibly low turnout, he had a significant number of African-American votes, uh, especially coming out of places like Brooklyn and Queens. Um, Tish James was the attorney general whose office produced the report that is taking Cuomo down, um, will run for governor, and I think will dominate uh, those voters. So it's hard to really see how the math adds up for the Blasio. Do you see any sort of unorthodox sort of people jumping in the race? Is there anybody who looks at this job and thinks like this is their – their, their way to jump into politics who may not be in politics right now? Yeah. I mean, I think that you certainly could have a celebrity or two jump in, um, you know, kind of like you see in California when they have a, a race for governor or a recall, something like that. Look, it, it certainly worked for Schwarzenegger. But but right now, um, it, it's very hard to see how whoever the Democratic nominee is would not win that election next year. Uh, maybe things will change, but at least at the moment, the, the legacy of Trump is still pretty strong. Um, and so as a result, that's who gets through the primary. Um, and it's, you know, I think either going to be most likely uh, a progressive or, um, you know, a moderate who is probably a person of color 
um, and, and can hold big swaths of that of the demographic, of the base. Um, what about Andrew himself? What do you suppose happens to him? I don't know, because here's here's the problem. But before all of this, I remember thinking like, this is someone whose life will really fall apart when he's no longer in power, because this is all he has, right? He, he's not, he doesn't have any intellectual interests in anything. Uh, I don't think he has much in the way of actual friends or relationships with family. It, it's all solely about the exercise of power and nothing else. And so even if he had left the governorship on, on kind of good terms, uh, I think he would have struggled because whatever corporate board he would have sat on or anything else just wouldn't be nearly uh, as exciting and meaningful to him as being governor. And now he's a pariah. Um, and I just don't know what he can do professionally. He, he's probably likening it to when he ran for governor in 2002 and lost and kind of had a, a comeuppance. But that, that was sort of an electoral comeuppance. Um, this is entirely different. And by the way, there are four or five separate district attorney invest, criminal investigations in Andrew Cuomo right now, plus a couple of federal. So this is all assuming he, he does not end up getting indicted for something. It's a good thing that New York is a huge state. So there are all kinds of pockets you can go where, you know, you can hide the Adirondacks, places like that. Pitts, Pittsfield, yeah. I think he has a house up there. Um, what uh, what about the people, his sort of loyalists in, in Albany? Are they? It, it depends, I think, on two things. On one, how involved you were in the problems, and two, uh, what your reputations and what you were like. So I, I was gone in Illinois by the time that Rob Blagojevich got arrested, but obviously most of the people who, who were still there are people Were you gone because you with. knew he was going to be arrested, or did that just – um, I left two years earlier, but uh, yeah, given that I had reported an incidence of corruption, uh, you were about hopeful him, that he would be arrested. I, I at least saw it as a possibility. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> um, and I got out of there. But um, you know, it, it really depended. So, like uh, the the chief of staff at the time got arrested with Blagojevich. I, I don't really think he actually did anything illegal because he didn't serve any any time at all. Actually, I think it was just sort of a you know we'll force you use that to force you to testify against him method. And I think he had a very hard time finding work afterwards because he had been arrested. He had been kind of the chief enabler to this person who had become also a pariah. Um, and I think he had a very, very hard time for a while kind of getting his career back on track. Whereas um, Bob Greenlee, who's on this podcast a lot, who uh, had replaced me and then Sheila Nix as deputy governor, um, you know, went on to have a, a really successful career because Bob was not seen to have done anything illegal or wrong in the government itself. And he was someone who was thought to be smart and responsible and responsive and respectful to other people. And as a result, you put all that together. Um, he was OK. So I think you are people in the Cuomo world where everyone says, you know, I, I kind of like so and so. And they did the best they could in a tough situation. And maybe they had a break. And there are other people who they're going to say. So-and-so is just an asshole. I always fucking hated them. Uh, and the knives are going to come out and it's going to be hard for those people to find work. Is that uh, Melissa DeRosa? Is that like her, you know? I mean, look, she's been in the news uh, a lot lately. The around post really that. goes after her like um, every day. Uh, I mean, it's just, Yeah, it, they don't like her. You know, Melissa, when, when Andrew was the kind of heroic governor conquering COVID, I think Marissa, Melissa was kind of the, the heroic staffer uh, helping him do that. And I think her career options then were probably pretty spectacular. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's going to be challenging for her. And also, uh, we'll see kind of where this goes. I think her name was mentioned in the AG report as many times as the governor's was. And 
uh, we'll we'll see whether or not she gets wrapped up in the, any of the uh, criminal probes in any way. I mean, I can't imagine she would have a problem in terms of like his investigation for uh, assaulting a woman at the at the governor's mansion. Um, but but the nursing home deaths or working in the book or other stuff like that, you know, maybe something eventually kind of comes back to her. We'll see. Let, let's let's step back for a second and just look at the whole mess. And is there anything here that isn't just kind of the normal? Uh, political scandal, you know, hitting someone yeah. pretty pretty hard, and 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 obviously right in the middle of it, it feels super intense. But will we look back in this and and see it as meaningful in any particular way, or or is it just kind of yes. like yeah, like here? I, I I I think we will because I think that um, the combination of the the sexual harassment and assault stuff combined with the way that Cuomo ran his office and his operation. Um, I, I think speaks to a cultural norm that often is tolerated in industries like politics, like Hollywood, like Wall Street, um, and, and it's no longer being tolerated, which is obviously a very good thing. Um, and I think that it's, it's not that you don't have plenty of other politicians who won't want to be total assholes uh, to everyone around them or take advantage of, of whatever power that they have. Um, but but if, you, if you take the, the key premise of this entire podcast every week, um, is that every policy output is the sh- result of a political input. Um, the number one thing that every politician cares about more than anything else is getting reelected, uh, and that will govern their behavior. And so I think that simply seeing what's happening to Cuomo right now uh, will have, uh, maybe I'm too optimistic here, but I think it will have a deterrent effect and a chilling effect. Uh, it, it will change behavior to a certain extent. So um, that's that's the silver lining here is that in the same way that hopefully Hollywood uh, changed for the better post Harvey Weinstein, um, maybe politics, at least New York politics, will change for the better post Andrew Cuomo. So we're going to switch just for the last few minutes here to to crypto and and the uh, Biden administration's um, in the infrastructure plan. There's a a, a small bit about about uh, sort of raising taxes on on crypto, some regulatory ideas. Um, I'm going to start with just a general question, and then we can get into some of the details. But is there anything similar to the way that government is approaching crypto right now? Um, is there anything similar to the way it was when when you were involved with Uber and the ride hailing sort of early days of of the the regulatory battles over that? I know it's a obviously completely different industry. Yeah, and, so and I, I would I would say actually no, and and here's here's why. So. Uber, there's almost two different categories of government regulatory fights around tech. So the first bucket, Uber is the perfect example, which is, you know, Travis didn't invent the notion of someone paying someone else to take them from point A to point B. That's been around for thousands of years. He came up with a better way to do it. Um, And, you know, entrepreneur like a Travis or Brian Chesky at Airbnb or whoever comes up with a better way to do something that already exists. Um, they start to get a little traction. At first, they're ignored. And then as they start to slowly take market share away from the incumbents, the incumbents panic, and they use their political muscle to try to get the relevant government agencies to shut down the uh, the competition. So that that's what Uber was, um, whereas crypto fits into that second bucket uh, of white spaces where it's not so much entrenched interest versus you know newcomers to the industry. It's there is no regulatory framework at all. There are no incumbents and nobody knows what to do. So that could be true for crypto, but also true for 
drones or AI or esports or you know all kinds of different things where new technologies have created products and services that never existed before. And because it didn't exist before, there was no need to regulate them, right? You don't, you don't regulate stuff that you haven't that doesn't exist yet most of the time. So um, it's really hard. To so do, yeah. I think crypto, yeah. So crypto kind of fits into that second category to me, where you know there's no regulatory framework, and crypto of all of the different things that I just listed, um, in some ways is the hardest because it is by definition a sovereignless currency, right? It, it was created by people who said to each other. Um, I don't trust government. I don't trust the central banks. I don't trust the media or the church or the military or Wall Street. Um, I would rather throw my lot in with like-minded people who I don't know who they are, and they're totally anonymous because of the internet. Um, but nonetheless, they share my underlying ideology and belief uh, in our distrust of government. So therefore, um, I, I prefer to put my money here instead. Right. So that is a very hardcore kind of anti-systemic mentality that, that you're entering with. And so on one hand, the, the, the conflict between crypto and government, it, it, it can be pretty significant because they're really set up for it. Um, on the other hand, and, and this is a you know another piece that I uh, hopefully will we'll publish in the next week or so, uh, in talking about how crypto should be regulated, um, it, is that even though crypto is obviously not a, an American invention per se, um, I, I think it's something that Americans are kind of good at, right? New markets, new ideas, new concepts, new technologies, innovation. You know, that's what we tend to do pretty well here. And so to me, you have this sector and industry that's not going away. It's here to stay. Um, it, it, it really has a lot of resonance with, with younger people. And either the U.S. can be kind of the global headquarters for crypto and really keep those jobs and, and, and revenue and money here, right? Or we can basically regulate them to the point where we say, we don't really want you here, uh, and, and we drive them away. So um, this is not to say that there shouldn't be regulation of crypto or that fraudulent uh, actors shouldn't be cracked down upon or anything else. Um, but I do think there's a real risk that, that you overregulate it and drive away, I think, what could be a really good opportunity. Well, it's a little bit like what they used to say about, you know, the high taxes in New York City, right? You know, like that that uh, that the you know the companies had to be here because it was New York and all these things. But um, uh, you know, obviously, they showed they didn't have to be here, and companies started leaving New York in the '60s and '70s. Yeah. Um, I guess there's a similar threat in in uh, in crypto. But on the other hand, the United States is you know the world's largest economy. Um, it's it's also um, you know the owner of the of the the world's you know uh, uh, leading currency, the the reserve currency for the entire world. Everybody would rather have dollars than anything else. Um, is there a? Uh, I, I guess what I, I what I'm driving at is what is the um, what is the positive regulatory regime here? What does it look like? Like, what is it? Does it need to be a totally new agency? Can it really happen through sort of existing institutions? Um, what's the what's the proactive uh, approach for the for the for the federal government. I, mean, I think the first thing they have to decide is is it a currency or is it an asset class, right? If it's an actual currency, then you and I were chatting before the podcast. You know, maybe something like the Fed um, does make sense because that that's what governs you know our, our currency. Whereas if it's purely an investment asset class, um, then the SEC or even sort of 
subset like the CFTC, um, you know, could ultimately make sense. And so I, I think you've got to resolve that that first uh, to make that decision. But the other thing you have to resolve is uh, what are we trying to accomplish with the regulation here? Are we trying to put uh, a structure into a kind of structureless uh, system right now? Um, are we just trying to protect investors from basic fraud? Are we trying to capture an industry that, that potentially could be a lucrative thing that you would want headquartered in this country? Um, and, and the problem is, I don't think anyone knows the answers to those questions right now. I think instinctively, uh, people on the left would say, you know, we want to crack down and prevent abuse and all of that. I think instinctively, people on the right might say, this is American innovation, we need to protect it. Um, but But these are not generally well thought out positions, they're just sort of, you know, knee jerk reactions. And so um, I, I think what I'm really urging is, is that when we do crypto regulation, and for example, the provision of the infrastructure bill around tax reporting, it may be fine. I don't know that I have a big problem with it personally, but it's just kind of a random way to regulate crypto is to, is to throw one concept into one bill. I think instead we have to figure out, you know, what is it we want crypto to be? Uh, in this country, and then once we answer that question, what's the regulatory framework that gets us there? What, what are you seeing a lot of crypto stuff in in pitches for Tusk Venture stuff? Yeah. You are, and and are you? What's your what's your basic orientation to it? Like when 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 you know you're going to be hearing uh, uh, from a you know potential uh, a potential investment like company like uh, what are you, are you excited about it? Or what are the questions you have? Like what what's the What's the, the point of view you bring to those to those pitches? Yeah, a few things. So one is um, we have invested in, in crypto exchanges like Coinbase and Circle. And uh, Coinbase's IPO was a huge success. And, and Circle has announced they're going public via SPAC. Um, and so uh, those have been pretty good overall. Um, I stay away from actual trading of cryptocurrency simply because I don't feel like I have any great sense or any better sense than anyone else as to whether or not Bitcoin's going to go up one day or down the next. And so to me, that's just pure gambling, so I stay away from it. Um, but if you're an exchange where you're getting commission on every trade and transaction happening in either direction, um, then you're just betting on the fact that there will be interest in this sector overall. And I, I do believe that the interest will be high. But the other piece of it, of course, is you know people often conflate um, Bitcoin and blockchain, right? And so um, for crypto specifically, our investments tend to be limited to um, the, the exchange space itself. Uh, but blockchain is technology that can be used to do all kinds of different things, right? And so uh, whether it's you know NFTs or mobile voting, you know, a topic our listeners have heard me talk about more than once, um, that all occurs uh, over the blockchain, um, and that's certainly another area that we. Uh, are interested in investing in. Well, I think we should wrap it up there. Uh, I want to say one thing just about future podcasts, not not even that far in the future, because within the next couple of weeks, certainly before September, we're going to be taking a pretty uh, hard look at, at sort of not just the return to the office, but the nature of office culture itself. Bradley and I have been having some discussions about that, and Bradley has some pretty interesting ideas about uh, what office culture was, what it what it what it could be. Um, and, uh, and so we're going to be getting to that in the next couple of weeks. And that's a good thing if for people who, who, who are interested in helping us with a survey, um, we'd love your thoughts on that too. And if you have ideas that you want to, um, pop into the, into the discussion here, uh, please, please do that. Our other guest, uh, this week is Sasha Eisenberg. He wrote a great book 
on the political struggle and back and forth uh, to legalize same-sex marriage. So we'll be talking to him and uh, put that up on Thursday. So uh, thank you for tuning in. Hugo, thanks for joining us as always. Uh, and we'll talk to you in a few days. And fill out that survey if you can. Thanks very much, Bradley.